We are in the book of Mark. We have made our way to chapter 3, and we will be looking at the first 19 verses, Mark 3, verses 1 through 19. Now, many of us like to be in control, especially of our own lives. In fact, we would like to be in control of the weather, uh, desiring for the day to be much nicer. We want to call the shots. We want to make the decisions. It's why I like to drive rather than ride, especially when we are on a trip, because I want to be in control. It's why I don't like to fly all that much, because I know that I have no control in flying. Not that I could do any better than the pilots. Of course, I could not. Not that I don't trust the pilots. Of course, I do. It is just this uneasiness, this anxiety of everything being out of your control and you not being able to do anything about it. People especially want to be in control when it comes to their daily lives and the decisions that go into it. That is why you will occasionally hear someone say, it's my life and I can live it any way I want. Or nobody can tell me what to do. But of course, as we age and mature, we come to realize that those statements are not true. So much of life is indeed out of our control, and the sooner we learn that, the better. Did you hear about the young man, he's 27 years old, who lives in India, who is suing his parents? This was in the news about a week or two ago. Now, the fact that he's suing his parents, unfortunately, is not exactly news. It happens occasionally. But the reason this man is suing his parents is what made this international news. Raphael Samuel is suing his parents because he was conceived without his consent. And therefore, his parents should pay for his life. He said, if we are born without our consent, we should be maintained for our lives. Parents have children for their own enjoyment, he claims, and therefore, children have no responsibility toward their parents which I might have just gotten a few converts from our younger crowd with those statements. His parents seem to be taking things in stride. Supposedly, his mom wrote this on Facebook. I must admire my son's temerity, a word I had to look up. It means extreme boldness. I must admire my son's temerity to want to take his parents to court knowing that both of us are lawyers. And he, she went on to say, if Raphael could come up with a rational explanation as to how we could have sought his consent to be born, I will accept my fa fault. Now, most of us know that we have absolutely no say over where, when, and to whom we are born. In fact, we have very little, if any, say over the circumstances and timing of our death. And truthfully, much in between falls in that same category. But the good news is that while we may not have everything under our control, there is one who does and he loves us and wants what is best for us. Besides that, he knows our needs better than we know them ourselves. So though we sometimes might say to others, don't worry, I have everything under control. It is not true, but we do know someone who does, and we can rejoice that God has everything under control. 
Today we are going to look at three episodes in the life of Jesus. Again, we are in the early life of Jesus, his ministry, I should say, in the northern part in Galilee. And these three episodes, while different, are each going to show us how Jesus has everything under control. I'm going to read each section separately so that we have the Scripture uppermost on our minds as we deal with that particular section. So we will begin in Mark chapter 3 and the first six verses. Mark 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was immediately restored or restored. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they could destroy him. Now, last week, we concluded by hearing Jesus declare that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Today, we see him demonstrating that fact that he is indeed Lord, and he has the Sabbath under his control. So as you see, once again, we are in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So whether this is a command or not, it is clearly the practice of Jesus and his disciples that they were in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And I'm still convinced it ought to be our practice to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day or Sunday. This is the last of the five controversies that we've been dealing with. It started at chapter 2 and verse 1, and Mark has grouped these five controversies together because of their common interest, the common idea of controversy with the religious rulers. And so these six verses are the last of the five, and they are, this is the only one of the five that occurs both on the Sabbath and in the synagogue. So on this particular Sabbath, there is a man there who has a disability. Something is wrong with his hand. We do not know any more specifics about that. We don't know exactly what the issue was or how long he's had it. We don't know anything else about this man at all because the fact of the matter is this man, though he is the one that is going to be healed, is not the focal person in this particular encounter or drama. This is an issue between Jesus and the Pharisees, as we shall see, and that is the center of attention here. Now, the Pharisees, of course, were there, but they were not there to worship. They were there to keep their eyes on Jesus. They were tired of Him humiliating Him. They were tired of Him asserting authority that they believed He did not possess. Who does He think He is to be openly violating the Sabbath in the synagogue in front of these Jews? Who is this man to go against all of the social and religious norms, not counting all of the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees? And though this is certainly not the main point of this section, it is a reminder that it is possible to come to church and to do so for the wrong reasons. These men were in the synagogue, but they weren't there to worship. And as we'll see, they were actually there for evil purposes. Well, the question then becomes, would Jesus violate the Sabbath yet again? 
This time by healing someone. Last week we saw him violating the Sabbath, number one, because he was traveling on the Sabbath, walking more than was lawful to walk. But more importantly, this is what they charged him with. He was allowing his disciples to pick heads of grain and eat them, which was, of course, reaping or harvesting. So now there is another Sabbath, and the question is, will he heal in violation of the Sabbath? Which, again, is a very serious charge. We don't quite get this because we don't have these same rules and regulations, but Exodus chapter 31 made it very clear that anybody that profaned the Sabbath or anybody that worked on the Sabbath was worthy of being put to death. This is a capital offense. So perhaps given the circumstances, it's best to turn the other cheek. It's best to walk away, to live another day, to argue and minister later. But that, of course, is not the route that Jesus is going to take, and none of this takes him by the surprise. Instead, he calls the man to himself, and I imagine this is the last thing this man was expecting. There is no indication in the story that this man came to the synagogue on the Sabbath in order to be healed. There is every indication that he merely came, perhaps as he always did, to worship with his friends and neighbors. Had he known that his disability would become the center of attention, perhaps he would have skipped on this particular Sabbath. Ancient synagogues were not constructed as our sanctuary is, where the front is the focal point and everything is pointed to or looking toward the front. In ancient synagogues, it was the center of the room that was the focal point, and the seats were all around the outside of the room. So Jesus is not calling this man down front as we might. He is calling him to the very center of the room where everyone can see him and everyone now knows about his disability. And there is no indication that this man is about to be healed because of his great faith. In fact, there is no statement at all in this text about the man's faith other than you might make the argument that reaching out his hand at the command of Jesus was a demonstration of faith given the fact that he knows there is opposition there. And I say all of that because we've already looked at a story where great faith was a a part of the healing. You remember that where the Jesus commends the five for their faith, the five being the four men who brought their friend who was lame on his bed or mattress, and then because they could not get through the front door, they lower him from the roof. And in that circumstance, Jesus commended them for their faith prior to healing the man. All of that to say, Jesus' healing ministries are often different. That is, sometimes he does one thing, sometimes he does another. Sometimes he says something, sometimes he doesn't say much of anything. And the point being, we cannot or we have to be very careful with pushing a particular healing and making all kinds of doctrinal statements from it because one healing might be different from the next. And so while we saw great faith precipitating the previous healing, we don't see faith mentioned here at all. But prior to the actual healing, then, there is a question. And the question is not posed to the disabled man. The question is posed to the religious leaders. Did you notice in verse 4, he says, and he said to them, that's plural, because he's not talking to the man anymore. He is talking to the religious leaders, and he asks them a question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He poses the question in a direct and difficult manner, so much so that it's going to be hard for them to answer. 
Of course it's not okay to do harm on the Sabbath. Of course it is not okay to kill on the Sabbath. For that matter, it's not okay to do that on any day. And it certainly should be okay to do good on the Sabbath and to save life. We've already seen in previous studies that indeed there was a stipulation in the law that if it was a matter of life and death, then you could work on the Sabbath. But none of Jesus' healings qualify for that. That is, none of them, certainly not this one, a withered hand is not a life or death matter. But this becomes the third element of the Lord's day. It was created for rest. That is, God rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Sabbath was created as a day of rest. It became a day of worship. Again, as we see, He is in the synagogue to worship on the Sabbath. And then it also transitioned into a day upon which good works could be done. That is, acts of mercy or compassion. But they couldn't say that because they didn't allow for good works on the Sabbath, again, unless it saved lives. There is another story in Luke's gospel that is very similar to this. On that occasion, Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there is a woman there with a disabling spirit. And in that story, the the head of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, is furious. He's furious with Jesus, and he's furious with the people for coming to Jesus, and this is what he says. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. That was their mindset. Even a good work of healing someone who perhaps had been lame for a long period of time is not something to be done on the Sabbath. Well, the Pharisees wisely choose not to answer the question, which is one of the ways that we see that Jesus is in control here. Because he asked the question, and he's very good at asking questions, and that question silences them. Any answer would have undermined their position on Sabbath observance, and so they choose not to answer at all. And it is sometimes the case that silence is, in fact, an answer, and that is the case here. In this case, it shows that they were insensitive to the purposes of God and insensitive to the suffering of men. Once again, choosing their commands over compassion. In Matthew's version of this same story, Jesus asked them, which of you who had a sheep fall into a pit on the Sabbath would not pull it out of the pit? And the implication is all of you would do this. And then he says, how much more valuable is this man than a sheep? Now, notice Jesus' response. Again, all of this takes place before the actual healing. His first response is he is angry, an emotion that we do not often associate with Jesus. We tend to think of anger as sinful, and in most cases for us, it is. And therefore, because we equate anger with sinfulness, and because we know that Jesus was sinless, we simply don't equate anger with Jesus. But not all anger is sinful. In fact, sometimes it is sinful not to be angry. This is what we call righteous indignation or righteous anger. It is anger directed toward evil. 
In this case, it is not just the men, but it is the system that they represent, that system of legalism that we talked about last week that had burdened the people for a long time. Jesus is angry with them and the system that they represent that has been burdening the people for a long period of time. Sometimes we talk about theology or morality, and we do so in in theological or moral terms. That is, we, we don't really put a face to it. We have dialogue, we have discussions, what about this, how should we do that, and we talk about these things as if they really don't affect real people and we just have this dialogue. But you know that when it's personal, it becomes more significant. For example, we are studying in our life groups the parable of the two sons, or more popularly called the parable of the prodigal son. So we have been discussing the actual parable, and tonight we will make the shift and start talking about the spiritual significance behind the parable, which of course is what a parable is, a story designed to teach a spiritual truth. However, that story becomes much more personal when you're going through it. In other words, we can sit in our life groups and we can discuss the the father and his graciousness or the young son and his rebellion or the older son and his legalism. We can theoretically and theologically discuss all of those things, but if you have a child who is wayward or if you have a spouse who has abandoned you and you are praying for them to come back, that story takes on much greater significance. And that's what we're seeing here. The Pharisees are very good at discussing theology. They are very good at discussing what should and should not happen on the Sabbath. And yet here is a man in front of them with a lame hand whom Jesus desires to heal, and they are debating what they should do if he does so. This is a real-life scenario, not just a theological discussion. And that is what we have going on in the synagogue. We are right to be angry, even as Jesus is sometimes. This is righteous indignation, and we are right to be likewise angry sometimes. For example, the recent abortion laws in several states that make abortions legal right up till basically the point of birth, we ought to be angry about that. All of the talk of sexual issues and the perversion that goes along with it and the victims that are mounting in all of these stories and the fact that oftentimes the perpetrator goes unpunished, we ought to be angry about that. We ought to be angry about injustice and oppression and all of those evil things that we see. And if we are not angry about those things, that in fact is sinful. So it is not wrong for Jesus to be angry here. He had every right to be angry. He was angry in the face of religious leaders who didn't care about the very people that they were supposed to be leading. And yet his anger was under control. That is another aspect, another characteristic of righteous anger. We don't see Jesus flying off at the handle here. We don't see him in rage, out of control, often what is associated with our own anger. So there is no angry outburst. We just see the fruit of it in the way he addresses them. Secondly, he was not only angry, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. In fact, the language is so strong here, we do not find this kind of strong language concerning Jesus' emotion until we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. These are the two occasions in Mark's gospel where we see these things most strongly. Now, we often admit that sin causes hardness of heart, and rightfully so. 
But in this case, it is religion that has hardened their hearts. And someone with a hard heart is often the hardest to reach because a hard heart is the greatest enemy to the love of God. Now, you know the Old Testament story of the Israelites and their desire to get out of slavery in Egypt and what God did in order to get them out of there. And a recurring phrase in that story is, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Or there are actually cases where it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which is a discussion for another day. Both of those statements are found there. God hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And that is why in the face of multiple devastating plagues against his people and against his country, he continued to not listen and let the people go because his heart was hard. And I do think we need to pause at this point in the story before we go any further and ask the question, is it possible that our hearts can become hardened or are hardened to the things of God? You say, well, that's not possible. I'm here on the Lord's Day. It's Sunday, I'm in the house of God, and we all know it's an awful day outside, and I've braved the weather to come inside and worship on this particular day. So how can you accuse me of my heart being hard? Well, may I remind you that these men were in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and yet Jesus is grieved over the hardness of their hearts. And so it is possible to go through the motions and the routines of religion while our heart is far from God. Or as Jesus said elsewhere, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If you sense that you are heading in that direction or you are already there or perhaps you've been there for a long time, I want to encourage, no, I I want to urge you to plead with God to change your heart, to acknowledge that your heart has somehow become hardened, even if you don't know how it happened, even if you don't know when it happened, and to beg God to soften and change your heart so that you can come and return to Him. Well, of course, Jesus heals the man, though again, this is not the main event. And now it is time for the Pharisees to be angry, though of course, their anger is the sinful kind of anger. And they join together with the Herodians in plotting from this moment forward to kill Jesus. Think about it. We are only in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel. We have a long way to go. But already in chapter 3, in probably the first year of his earthly ministry in Galilee, which is north, we've not even made it down to Jerusalem, and yet they are already plotting to kill him. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the Herodians. They're not mentioned much. They're mentioned here. They're mentioned about two other times in Scripture, interestingly enough, in both cases in connection with the Pharisees. Outside of the Bible, they are not mentioned at all. In any extra-biblical literature, you will not find them mentioned other than perhaps one passing reference from Josephus. So we don't know a whole lot about them, but by their name, we know that they must have been sympathizers and supporters of Rome. They were sympathizers and supporters of Herod, and in this region it would have been Herod Antipas. And therefore, they were loyal to the Roman rule over Palestine and the causes behind it, which means they would have normally been hated by the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees are a group of Jews who desire for the Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman rule. That's their dream. The Herodians are probably wealthy and definitely sympathetic toward and supportive of Rome rule. And yet here we find these two opposing groups together because they have a common enemy. And common enemies make strange bedfellows. And in this case, their common enemy is Jesus. And so now he faces not only religious opposition, but now he faces political opposition. We mentioned last week that the Pharisees were a group of laymen. That is, they were not men who earned their living from working in the synagogues. We call them religious rulers, but they worked other trades in order to make their living. And I bring that up again this week because I read this week where, where one of the authors I was reading said, for the next year or year and a half, their main occupation will be to plot the death of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that that's where they're going to get their income. It's a figure of speech in this case. But this is going to be their priority from this moment forward. This is going to be their focus from here until Calvary. They want to see Jesus dead, and they will align themselves with anyone who has that common interest. Now, before we move on to the next story, I do want you to see the irony in this episode. Remember, they were angry with Jesus so angry that they want to kill him because he had healed a lame man on the Sabbath. Now, it's not really just this one incident. It's a accumulation of incidents, but this is the one that puts them over the top. They are angry with him for doing good, for showing compassion and mercy on the Sabbath. We need to ask, what were they doing on the Sabbath? Well, they were in the synagogue, but they weren't there to worship. Their eyes were on Jesus. They were hoping to catch him so that they could accuse him and ultimately plot his death. These men were plotting the death of Jesus on the Sabbath, which is why Jesus asked that question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or to kill it? Because he knows what they're doing. It's often the case that religious people have a hard time seeing their own sins because we're so busy pointing out the sins of everyone else. Well, we've seen that Jesus had control over the Sabbath. Let's move to our second episode and see that Jesus has control over spirits, verses 7 and following. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now we see he has control over The spirits. The setting, of course, has changed. We are no longer in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He has gone now back to the sea where so much of his early ministry centered. That is the Sea of Galilee. And there the crowds have followed him. He evidently wanted to go there for some rest and solitude with his disciples. But that's exactly what he's not going to get because the crowds, once again, are pressing on him. This is a summary section. This section is a reminder that what we have been studying is not all that has transpired. 
the few cases of healings that we've looked at, because Mark has recorded them, are not the totality of what has gone on. The few cases of demons being cast out are not the totality of what has happened. Jesus' ministry is much broader than this. And we saw in chapter 1 and verse 28 that his fame was spreading throughout all of Galilee. And this summary section here is telling us that that's no longer the case. Now his fame has spread well beyond Galilee. In fact, all the way down to Jerusalem and every part's all around. And I won't bore you with the details of these particular cities and places, only to tell you it's basically talking about all four directions, north, south, east, and west. The fame of Jesus has spread out. And people are coming to see and be healed by him from all of these places. And not only that, but we see a distinction here in the fact that some of these places are Jewish places. Some of these places are mixed. That is, they are cities where both Jews and Gentiles live. And some of these cities are Gentile uh, majority places. And so again, the fame of Jesus has gone beyond merely the Jews now, and people from every place and all ethnic backgrounds are now coming to Jesus in such large numbers that they are pressing in on Him. So much so that He has His disciples to prepare a boat just in case He needs to get off of land for His own safety. Now, you've probably been in a big crowd before, before or after a concert or a big game, and you know that sometimes it can get a little scary. When people start pushing and shoving, depending, of course, on how aggressive people are uh, after the event to try to get to their cars and get home. This is not the picture we see in our story Bibles. It's not the picture that we see in murals on the children's uh, Sunday school wing. What we tend to see is scenes of Jesus that are idyllic. There is Jesus. He's sitting under a tree. There are some sheep grazing in the background, and there are a handful of disciples and children who are eagerly hanging on his every word. That's sort of the picture we have, but it is not the picture that Mark paints. The picture Mark paints is more like a a, a present-day personality or celebrity who has come to town, and everybody knows they were coming to town, and so everybody wants to see them, and they are pushing and shoving, trying to get as close to this personality as they can possibly get, so of course they can get a selfie or a picture and add to that the security team and and the Uh, publicity and the photographers trying to get just the right picture that's going to land on the next magazine cover. That's the picture Mark paints for us. There are so many people that are pressing in on Jesus that he's making provisions just in case he needs to get out of here quickly. It's a picture of chaos. But the focus of this episode or summary is the reaction of the unclean spirits. They fall down before him in recognition of who he is, and they cry out, you are the Son of God, which of course we recognize as a true statement, a Christological title. And there is more irony here, since their declaration is correct, at this stage in the ministry of Jesus, they know more about Jesus. These unclean spirits know more about Jesus than his disciples do. And these unclean spirits certainly know more about Jesus than the crowds do because they're still there for his healing, not for his person or for his mission. In fact, in Mark's gospel, no human being will give Jesus this title again, or not again, this is not a human being here. No human being gives Jesus this title until the crucifixion, where, of course, the soldier says, truly this was the Son of God. 
Now, we do know in Matthew's gospel that Peter makes that statement. In his great confession, he adds the word living. He said, you are the son of the living God. But for now, at this point in his ministry, these spirits are more aware of who Jesus is than his disciples. But this is not a declaration of commitment. They are not proclaiming their allegiance to Christ. This is a declaration of fear or opposition. James reminds us that the demons believe. They have good theology. He says, you believe in one God, you do well. The demons believe and they tremble. And that's similar to what we are seeing here. In fact, there is some belief in the first century that by naming Jesus, the demons would have thought they were having authority over him, which of course we know is not the case here or anywhere. Instead, Jesus once again clearly has this situation under control and silences the spirits with a strict warning. He doesn't need demons testifying on his behalf. That would not further his mission And it is coming from the wrong source and still at the wrong time. Again, we talked about the messianic secret a couple of weeks ago. He will consistently tell folks to be quiet about who he is early on because there is so much negativity and falsehood surrounding the titles, particularly Messiah or Son of God here, that he tries to keep that quiet for a while. Again, I realize that all of this brings up questions. When it comes to unclean spirits or demons, it brings up questions in our own day. In fact, someone asked me a question about that, about that this week, though they have not been coming to these sermons. And so apart from what we're talking about here, they asked me that. They said, why does there not seem to be as much demon or unclean spirit activity today as there was in Jesus' day? And clearly, as we read the New Testament, we see a lot of it in the Gospels. And so we ask ourselves, Is it happening today and we just don't recognize it, or is it no longer happening? And there are basically two answers to that. Answer number one is that indeed there was a lot more demon or unclean spirit activity in the days of Jesus while he was here on the earth because he was here in person and because he was ushering in his kingdom. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And because the kingdom of God had arrived, then the the evil ones were attacking it And of course, we know that Jesus conquered, though not completely yet, but largely conquered that, and therefore the answer would be, in our day, there is not nearly that kind of activity. That's one option. Option number two is that we are simply more sophisticated now than they were then, and therefore the same things are happening, we just call it by different names. And perhaps the truth lies somewhere with a mixture of the two. But for the second time in these episodes... We see that Jesus has everything under control in both cases because his opposition was silenced. The Pharisees didn't know how to answer him, so they didn't. And now he commands the unclean spirits to keep quiet, and they have no recourse but to bow in submission before him. Which leads to our third episode where we see Jesus having control over the calling. That is the calling of the apostles. Verse 13, And he went up on a mountain... And called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Benerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
So now we see, lastly, that Jesus has control over those He is calling to Himself. Now, the setting, once again, has changed. He is now not by the sea, but He is on a mountain, and we know that in Scripture there are significant events that happen on mountains. But more importantly here, the terminology makes it very clear that once again, Jesus is the one in control. He is doing the calling. He is the one choosing and selecting the twelve. Now, granted, they have to respond, and they do, but the terminology makes it very clear that He is in control of all that is taking place. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that this was not the normal way it worked at that time. It was normal for a teacher or for a rabbi to have students, to have disciples. But the custom was that that student or disciple did the choosing. Much like our young people choose a college, that is, they look around at the various options, they see which one might work best for them and for their desires, and they select a college on that basis. That was the norm in that day. But Jesus does the opposite. Jesus, the rabbi, is calling unto Himself those whom He wants to be His apostles. And they respond, and they become what Mark begins to call the twelve. Now, before we find out who they are, we are told what their mission will be. So what is it that the apostles are to do? Look at verse 14 again, and here's the first answer. And he pointed 12 whom he named apostles so that, here's what they're going to do, so that they might be with him. That's important. A disciple was not like a student in our classrooms today. A college student goes to class sits under a professor, takes notes from that professor's teaching, and learns from that teacher. But by and large, a college student does not have a relationship with the teacher. They do not have fellowship with the teacher. Now, I know there are exceptions to that. I'm just talking about the general rule. They sit in their class, they listen, and they learn, and they go their separate way. But in Jesus' day, a disciple would have walked with, they would have lived with, they would have interacted with their teacher, even as we see the disciples doing, for a number of years. It is not just that they are learning information from Jesus. They are living with Jesus, learning from His instruction as well as His example. And they are not ready to be sent out, which we will see in chapter 6, but they are not ready to be sent out until they have first spent time with Jesus. One of my favorite biblical phrases is found in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, there is the story of Peter and John. They have been arrested because they have been proclaiming that Jesus is alive. This is obviously post-resurrection, and so they are proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the council, made up of these same Pharisees and other religious leaders, the council is not happy with this proclamation, and so they arrest them and bring charges against them. However, they notice that these men are very bold in their proclamation. And at the same time, they understand that these men are commoners. That is, there is no background education-wise that would lead to them doing these things. In fact, they go on to say that they're not only common men, they are uneducated men. And because they are uneducated and common, and yet they are proclaiming boldly that Jesus is alive, it leaves the council astonished. And here's the phrase, and it is from the council concerning Peter and John. And they, that is the council, recognized 
that they had been with Jesus. These opponents of Jesus, these men who were trying to silence the proclamation of a risen Christ, looked at Peter and John and said to themselves, there is something so much different about them that they must have been with Jesus. I wonder if anybody ever thinks that about us. Does anyone ever see such a difference in our lives that they would make such a statement? Clearly, she has been with Jesus. I I would like to answer yes to that, but my guess is that's not the correct answer. You see, we don't spend time with Jesus so that we can mark off a box that we had our quiet time today. We don't spend time with Jesus because we want to keep up with the church's reading of the Bible and we're afraid someone's going to ask us if we're caught up and therefore we spend time with him so that we can be caught up. We don't spend time with Jesus so that we feel less guilty and hope that he blesses us as a result. We spend time with Jesus because we want to and in the process, he transforms us. So first, they must be with him. And then, secondly, Their mission will be to be sent out to preach. Jesus will be empowering these men with his message and his authority so that his ministry can be multiplied. In fact, he says on another occasion that you're going to do greater things than I've ever done. And they couldn't understand that because they've seen the great things that he did. But he was talking about the fact that when he invested in them and they went out and they invested in others, there would be a multiplication of his ministry And this continues to be the case with all of us who are to be his disciples. You may not preach in the classic sense of the word as in doing what I'm doing this morning, but all of us as his disciples have a responsibility to proclaim that salvation has come. God in Christ brings salvation to sinful men and women. And finally, they will demonstrate that by the authority that Jesus gives them to cast out demons just as he had done. So that's their mission. Who are these men? Well, we've already been introduced to five of them. You remember, we've already talked about two pairs of brothers who were all fishermen whom Jesus called to himself on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And then a few weeks ago, we talked about Levi or Matthew, who was a tax collector whom Jesus called. So now we are introduced to all 12. There are four lists of the names of the disciples in the entirety of Scripture. Every one of the synoptic gospels contains one. John does not. And then there is a list found in the book of Acts. Peter's name is always first because he is the leader of the group. Then after Peter, James and John follow. And these three men formed an inner circle with Jesus. They had several experiences with the three of them that the other disciples did not have. For example, the transfiguration. And here, James and John are given a nickname, perhaps testifying to their hot-tempered nature or their loud uh, way in which they proclaimed. Sons of thunder, as it's translated. And Luke tells us that it was James and John who, on another occasion, asked Jesus, do you want us to call down fire to destroy this village? When a Samaritan village did not receive them well, James and John want to burn the place down perhaps testifying to their name here. Jesus, of course, tells them no. Judas's name is always last and always with the addition, the one who betrayed him. Frankly, the rest of these men we know very little about. Some of them we know absolutely nothing about. 
Simon, who is called a zealot, can mean one of two things. It can mean that he's zealous for the honor of God, that he's, that he's just really committed. Or there was also a group known as the Zealots. And this was a nationalistic and revolutionary party. That is, they were actively, they were zealous, they were zealots in desiring to overthrow the Romans. And the reason I bring that up is this. If indeed Simon was a member of the Zealots, that is a group that was trying with all their might to overthrow the Romans, and we've already been introduced to Levi or Matthew who was a tax collector, and we said tax collectors were in cahoots with the Romans because they were collecting taxes for them, and therefore they were essentially traitors to the Jews. They were despised and excommunicated from the synagogue for being a tax collector. My point being, only Jesus can bring together Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, and pull them together as two of his 12 disciples and have these two men working together for him and for his kingdom and mission. Such is the nature of Jesus' calling, that he calls people of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic standings, and he brings us all together into his kingdom with one purpose and one mission. Now, given all of these episodes that we've seen and the fact that we've noticed that Jesus is in control or has everything under His control, I'm not quite sure why we are so strong-headed about wanting to be in control of our own lives and our own future. Why do we insist on being in control when God, in fact, is in control and is much better at it than we could ever be? Wouldn't it be far better to trust in Him and rest knowing that He has all things in His control? Some of us want to be in control of our salvation, working for it, checking off the right boxes, assuming that if we check off the right boxes and avoid all of the wrong ones, then God is sort of under obligation to let us into heaven. If we've done enough, if we've avoided enough, then we will go to heaven forgetting that salvation is a gift of God by God's grace. Likewise, some of us want to be in control of our sanctification. So we keep trying and doing our best, and surely God must be pleased with our effort. At least we'll get an A for effort. Forgetting what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we need to be reminded that Sanctification is found in our union with Christ, abiding in Christ and the Holy Spirit's power within us. God is in control of every situation we've examined today. God is in control of His entire creation, for He created it and He sustained it, and God is in control of your life and mine. And so rather than complaining that we are not in control and wanting to control the direction of our lives, perhaps we should be grateful and trusting knowing that He is not only in control, but He loves us and knows what we need, and He's doing all things for His glory and, yes, for our good, even when we can't understand it or see it. Let's pray.